Um, well, let's jump in. Uh, A.W. Tozer, he says this quote. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you? So I want to ask you right now, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of God? Do you think he's kind? Do you think maybe he's angry? Do you feel he's distant? And why this is so important, because how you see God will form how you see everything else. How you see God will form how you see yourself, and in turn, how you will see other people. And I would say, if you were to ask Jesus this question, <laughs> Jesus, how do you see God? Well, that'd be a really cool question to ask Jesus. Jesus, how, how do you see God? I would say Jesus would say, Father. <laughs> if you ask Jesus, how do you see God? He would say, Father. When you look at the way that he talked and revealed who God is, it was as Father, and this is a, a very interesting thing. You guys know the story in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples go up to him and say, Jesus, teach us how to do what? Pray. And why this is so interesting is because the, the, the disciples have seen Jesus do a lot of crazy things, right? They've seen Jesus raise the dead. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They've seen Jesus multiply food. You would think you've been walking for Jesus for years. You're like, Jesus, teach me how to like multiply you know, my chicken wings, right? Like, teach me how to do all these crazy stuff. But they asked Jesus specifically, teach us how to pray. And what's even more interesting, Jewish people knew how to pray. They prayed three times a day. They prayed probably more than most Christians pray. Yet there was something about the way Jesus prayed. There's something about the way Jesus knew God and talked to God and met with God that was just radical for them. There's something about when, when Jesus would go away to pray to God, there's something that would happen when he would come back. There's something about, about who he is when he's in that place. And do you know how he teaches them how to pray? This is how he starts, our Father. He doesn't say, start with our Lord, El Shaddai, <laughs> Yahweh. He says, no, start your connection with God by saying our Father. And so today's message, I want to talk about the heart of the Father. I know for some of us, this may seem like an obvious thing. This may seem like something that isn't so profound. But here's the interesting thing. This is actually the first time I've ever preached on the Father, which is very crazy because I love the Father, and I talk about the Father all the time. This is the first time I've ever preached on the Father. And uh, I'm currently a father of a two-and-a-half-year-old. I have another one on the way, which is super exciting. Um, please pray for me. If you guys want to, you know, I'll throw my cash app up for that. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I'm a father, and, and, I, and, and for some of you who've been fathers and who are fathers, it's such a refining journey. And in that journey, you really start to discover what does it actually mean to be a child, <laughs> And in my journey of being a father, I've realized how much more that I need God to actually father me. I'm like, man, I didn't respond really well to my son in this moment. God, I need you to father me. God, I need you to show me more of your heart so I can show my son your heart. But I think it's interesting. If God wanted to reveal himself as 
a father, then of course the enemy will try to do everything in his power to destroy fatherhood. If, if fatherhood is the primary relational dynamic that God wanted to reveal to us to show what he is actually like, then of course that is going to be the thing that the enemy is just going to hammer and destroy and distort. I don't know if you guys know this, but we're actually called the fatherless generation. But here's some statistics to even prove that. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless, 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 71% of pregnant teenagers lack a father. 85% of youths in prisons grew up in a fatherless home. The enemy's tactic was that if he can destroy the construct of what a father is like, then he can destroy our understanding of what God is like. And we know this has been his tactic from the very beginning. When we look in the garden and the serpent comes and talks to Eve, and he says, did God really say that? He, 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 he has this moment where he's starting to distort to Eve what God is actually like. He's saying, did, did God really say that? Right, that's, that's what he comes to us oftentimes. Is God really like that? Is God really that good? Can God really be that kind and that forgiving and that gracious when you mess up? Is God really like that? And if you go to Genesis 3, verse 7, if you guys want to go there, this is the moment, okay, after they disobeyed God, they ate of the fruit, and this is what happens. It says, at that moment, their eyes were opened, okay, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt what? Shame at their nakedness. This is an emotion they have never felt before. They felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So they felt shame and then they covered themselves. And I just want to make this clear that shame, guilt, and condemnation never come from God. God will convict you. <laughs> But God doesn't abuse you. He doesn't shame you to teach you a lesson. He doesn't guilt you to make you change, right? It says that the kindness of God is what leads you to repentance. It's not the shame of God. It's not the guilt of God. I know for a lot of people, maybe that's how you grew up. Maybe that's how you're disciplined, that you're guilted to do the right thing. But scripture says that God's kindness is what leads us to actually change our heart. It's the kindness of God that leads us to want to change. And in this moment in Genesis, we see that the enemy know if he can make man receive shame, then man will hide and separate themselves from God. <laughs> That's what shame does. That if the enemy can make you receive shame for your shortcomings, for your mistakes, then he knows, hey, if I can shame them, then they're actually going to separate. They're going to they're create a barrier between them and God. Right, this is exactly what Adam and Eve did, and this is oftentimes what we do. We distance ourselves from the very person who's supposed to bring our healing. Isn't that crazy? We, we separate from the very person that's actually trying to speak truth and identity over us. Can I just expose the enemy's tactic this morning? Is that okay? All right. 
Bill Johnson, he says this, don't believe any thought about yourself that the Father doesn't think about you. Is this thought, is this something that God thinks about me? If it isn't, then don't receive it. That your understanding of God as a father is revealed when you mess up. When you mess up reveals how you actually see God. Do you draw away from God when you mess up or do you draw close to God when you mess up? (laughs) It's pretty hard. This reveals how we actually see God. Because if we distance ourselves from God when we mess up, internally there's a belief system that says, I am ashamed, God looks at me differently, I have to hide and I have to fix myself before I go to God. But the revelation that God is actually a good and loving father says, when you mess up, my kindness and my grace is what leads you to actually change and stop sinning, not your own efforts. So in Genesis 3, 10 to 11, if you keep reading down in the story, Adam and Eve hid, and God is looking for Adam in the garden. He's saying, Adam, where are you? And obviously God knows where Adam is, right? Just fig leaves. It's not anything crazy. How oftentimes do we create barriers between us and God? God's like, I can still see you. <laughs> like, I'm still here. You know that, right? Like, your brokenness isn't that big of a barrier. It isn't that tall of a wall. But he says this. Adam says this to God because God's like, where, where are you? And he says this. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. That's another emotion that man never felt was fear because I was naked. And this isn't the good fear of God. This is the fear of punishment from God. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is really profound. I want you to hear this. God looks at Adam and says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? I think for a lot of us, we believe the lie that we're too broken, we're too far gone, we're too impure, and that God doesn't look at us the same. This is why Adam and Eve hid, because they saw their nakedness and were afraid. But I want you to see this. God sees them in the midst of their shame and the midst of their fear. And this is what he says, who told you you were naked? (laughs) Because the entire time, God already knew they were naked. God already saw their vulnerable self. God already saw all of them. Them eating the fruit did not change how they looked. You guys tracking? After they sinned, God did not change how he saw them. He's saying, who told you you're naked? I've seen you the exact same way this entire time, but now you become aware of shame and fear. You'll get that tomorrow. It's okay. But God has saw them the same the entire time, even after they sinned. And he's saying to us today, who told you that you're too impure? Who told you that you're too broken to be used by God? Who told you that you should hate yourself? Who told you that you are unworthy of my love? This is what God the Father is saying. Who told you that? Because I didn't tell you that. I didn't tell you that you should be ashamed of your nakedness. Brennan Manning, he says this quote, he says, his love which calls us into existence calls us to come out of self-hatred and to step into his truth. He says, come to me now, acknowledge and accept who I want to be for you 
a savior of boundless compassion, infinite patience, unbearable forgiveness, and love that keeps no score of wrongs. So good. I love that. Accept who I want to be for you. Culture says just accept who you are. Accept how you are. God's saying, no, accept who I am for you. Accept who I want to be for you because truth is what sets us free. The truth of who God wants to be for you, that God wants to be the one, that is the one that cleanses you. I think this is the funny thing. My, my friend told me this one time. When we feel dirty, we feel like we've, we've, mis, we've made too many mistakes. We, we go away from God and we have this natural tendency that we have to clean ourselves up. We have to purify ourselves. Then we can come to God. But God's the shower. God's the one that you draw near to, and then he cleanses you. You guys okay? All right, Luke 15. Let's go there. Luke 15. We all know the story of the prodigal, so I'm not going to read the full thing. But this story, just to give you guys a context, just a refresher, is Jesus is telling the story of this prodigal son. And this prodigal goes, or this son goes to his father, and he says, Father, I want my inheritance. And what that pretty much means is, hey, Dad, I want you to drop Dad, give me my money, right? Because when you get inheritance, it's because someone dies. So, so first, he dishonors his father, give me my inheritance. He leaves home, and then he squanders it, he wastes all of the money that his father worked. He, he, he wasted everything his father has given him. And he lands in this place where he's literally sleeping with pigs. And he's eating pig slop. And he has this realization, wait, if I go back to my father and just be a servant, my life will be better. If I can just go to God and I, and I can just serve him and be a servant, then maybe I'll be fixed. And he has this realization, and this is unique. He had this moment, and he practices his repentance speech. He's like, okay, I'm going to say this. Father, all of heaven and earth, I've sinned before. He practices this speech. He's like, okay, I figured out I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to give him this, this lavished apology, and then I'm going to be a servant. At least my life will be better than sleeping with pigs. Luke 15, verse 19. Okay, he's, he's practicing his speech here. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me like one of your hired servants. This is what his, his speech was, right? So he got up and went to his father, who's coming home. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. Stop right there. That's some good theology for you. <laughs> and he ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The word kissed in the original language is to kiss multiple times. It wasn't like, right? It was like, he was like lavishing him with love. The son said to him, Father, okay, he's practicing his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. Listen to his language. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine. He doesn't call him a servant. For this son of mine, this child of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost, is found. So they began to celebrate. 
pause really quick. A lot of us have this weird and, and just kind of like messy understanding of repentance, <laughs> right? I think whenever we think about repentance, we think of like sidewalk preachers saying, repent or you're going to burn, right? You know what I'm talking about, those people? And so when we think about repentance, we, we have this like, this, this oppressive idea of it. <laughs> but this is so beautiful. The Lord actually showed me this in the scripture, the son, he came to practice this, quote, repentance speech by saying, I'm not worthy. He's speaking all this false identity of himself. He goes to the father and he starts to say his speech. And the father doesn't even care about his speech. Do you notice that? He doesn't respond to his speech. He just goes and he lavishes him. Why? Because repentance wasn't the speech. It was the fact that he came home. That repentance isn't okay. I need to go and just like destroy myself before God and talk about how wretched I am and how messed up I am, and then God will welcome me in. The fact that he drew near was the repentance. It's his kindness. It was the realization that, that his father's kindness, that he knew I can at least be welcomed back into my home. It was the kindness of the father that led him to return. And when you have that same realization with God, when you realize, man, my father's kindness, that's repentance. <laughs> the word prodigal, because we oftentimes know about the prodigal son, the word prodigal actually means extravagant. I think more than anything, this story is less about the prodigal son, but about the prodigal father. That in this story, Jesus reveals to us what the Father is actually like. That even when we squander our inheritance, when we make mistake after mistake, when we've seemed to have gone too far, he doesn't just wait for you at the porch, he runs to you. <laughs> Come on. He runs to you and he embraces you. And he doesn't call you a servant, he doesn't call you a slave, he doesn't call you a mess up, he calls you a son and a daughter. And I love the imagery here that he, he gives him a robe, which symbolizes righteousness, right? We're robed in righteousness. It's, it's, that means that you have right standing with someone. So he clothes him with right standing. We're in good terms now. He puts a ring on his finger, which symbolizes sonship, that you are my son. You are part of my family. And he puts sandals on his feet, which symbolizes purity, that you are clean. That this is what the Lord does, the Father does when you come to him that he's clothing you with his righteousness because he who knew no sin, right? Jesus who knew no sin became sin for you so that you would become the righteousness of Christ. He calls you now a child and he now makes you clean. At the end of the story, I love, I don't know if you, if you noticed this, but the son didn't even have time to clean himself up. He is probably still smelling like pigs, his breath, come on, somebody. His breath was probably still stanky, eating some pig pods. And he goes to his father. He doesn't even have time to clean himself up before the father just lavishes him with love. That we go to God and we still smell like our past. <laughs> We still smell like this morning's mistakes. That's what we think. But when we go to God... He reveals what we are actually like. He reveals who you actually are. That's powerful. Matthew 3.17. Let's go there. 
This is the story of Jesus' baptism. Do you guys remember this story? Jesus is baptized, heaven opens up, the spirit descends like a dove, and he hears the Father's voice, and he says this, this is my son, whom I what? Whom I love, with him I am what? Well pleased. He says this about Jesus. And if you know scripture, at this point, Jesus hasn't done any ministry yet. From what we know recorded, Jesus hasn't done any miracles, at least from what we know. And it wasn't until after this moment that he hears the Father's voice that he is then sent out to do what he did to release the kingdom, to die for our sins, and to resurrect from the dead. But this was Jesus' moment where he heard the Father's affirmation and the Father's voice say, this is my son, this is the one whom I love, and with him I am well pleased in. I think for a lot of us, we struggle with our identity because we're trying to create our identity. We live in a day and age where everyone's just creating their own identity, if you know what I'm saying. That we think that we have to create our identity, we think we have to achieve our identity, but I don't know if you know this, an identity is given. Your identity is given to you, whether good or bad. When you think about what you believe about who you are, that's something that was given to you, whether good or bad. If you believe you're horrible, broken, full of mistakes, the reason you believe that because someone gave that to you. Whether it's a family member or a friend or ex-relationship, but the father looks at you and says, who told you that? I want you to receive the identity that I'm trying to give you. Because all these other things you can try to identify as, you can try to put your identity into, but it will never sustain you. It will never actually bring real healing. But when Jesus hears the Father's voice, if you've received Jesus, you receive the same thing from the Father. Because you are one with Jesus, you're united with him. And so what the Father says about Jesus, pay attention, what the Father says about Jesus, he says about you. When he looks at you, he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and with you I am pleased. He's pleased with you before you do anything for him. He was pleased with Jesus before Jesus did any ministry. And we have this idea that God is pleased with me when I do things for him. God is pleased with me when I rack up this, this amount of status and this amount of salvations and this amount of people getting healed. But Jesus received the Father's blessing before he ever did anything. The Father shows you that your identity isn't based on what you do or don't do, but it's based on how he sees you. In the same way he sees his son, he sees you because you are one with Christ. We're about to close, but I want to share this story. I quoted him earlier in this message, but Brendan Manning is an amazing author. He shares this story. He was at this conference. It was like 7,000 people. This conference, and he has a, like the whole Abba message. Like he was a big proponent of releasing that in the church. But he has this conference. And three in the morning, a nun knocks at his door who went to the conference. 
And she starts telling him this story, three in the morning. She just wakes him up. This nun was 78 years old. And she was sexually abused by her father from the age of five. And she never told anyone. For 73 years of her life, she held in this pain. And this nun comes to Manning one night and tells him of all the hatred she has felt in her heart for a long, long time. She spoke about going through the motions of religion to keep up appearances, but her heart was very, very broken. And after listening to her story and praying for healing, Manning asked her to find a quiet place and pray this prayer every day for the next 30 days. Abba, I belong to you. If you know the song, this is where it's from. He explained that this prayer is exactly seven syllables and corresponds to the rhythm of breathing. Inhale, Abba. Exhale, I belong to you. And she did it. Manning says her follow-up letter told how her heart has been healed and how she has forgiven her father. And now she knows inner peace for the first time in her life because she knew God as a father. Guys, this isn't just like cool thing to say God is a father this is everything and we're at church like if you're here the past few Sundays like we're going pretty hard on some stuff like we're all for the kingdom and pushing the kingdom and ministry to the Lord and counting the cost of following Jesus but this is the foundation this was Jesus's foundation guys you don't graduate from this place you don't get a theology degree and realize, man, I've, I've already graduated from the Father's love. It doesn't work like that. That this is the place that we stay in. That Jesus would oftentimes go in lowly places to meet with the Father. And I just want to release this to you. And I, I'm, I'm aware, I've, I've done ministry for so long to know that there's a lot of father wounds in the room. There's a lot of absent fathers. There's a lot of fathers that have just spoken lies. There's a lot of fathers that have fallen short that didn't protect you, that didn't lead you the right way. And I want you to know, as a father, that I'm sorry that God isn't like that. That God is not an absent father. God is not an abusive father. God doesn't speak lies over you. God doesn't not protect you. And so this morning, my desire is that you would come into contact with the heart of the Father. That in Romans 8, just as we close, it says this, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. It doesn't make you servants so that you can live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry out what? It's all to say that. Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Guys, this is the place we discover our identity. If you are struggling with your identity, if you still feel like you're, you're just grasping to hold on to who you actually are, I'm telling you right now, this is the place that you find it. Like, there's, there's no other theological landing point to this. It's either you know who the Father says you are or you don't. And the word Abba, as you guys know, in, in, in Aramaic, it's the most intimate way of calling someone a father. It's like saying Papa. 
But God doesn't just want you to call him, you know, Father, Bishop, Father God, right? He says, I want you to call me Papa. I want you to know how intimately you can know me and how intimately I know you. And, and Tim Keller, he says this quote, he says, the only person who dares to wake up a king at three in the morning for a glass of water is a child, and we have that kind of access. So I'm just going to pray. Can you guys stand?